So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the 12th chapter, verses 32 through 34. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for illumination. Father, as I said in my prayer earlier, I just do pray for your spirit to illuminate us. Perhaps a little bit of a different view of treasure, a little bit different view of kingdom treasure, but help us understand what the whole purpose for our existence is, and may we apply it when we consider this passage that Jesus is teaching us and come to understand why I would say that the pursuit of kingdom treasure is something each and every one of us should do every single day for the rest of our lives. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have sort of an anomaly to discuss this morning um, uh, in our text. An anomaly is just something that, well, it, it doesn't seem to make sense. We need to, um, to explain it a little bit more. And, and that is this whole idea of treasure. Jesus in our passage here tells us to pursue kingdom treasure. But previously, we have been taught not to pursue treasure. In fact, Jesus has just said, life is more than food and body, the body is more than clothing. And he gave us that parable of the rich fool who was with abandon and without thinking about God was seeking the treasure of this world. Now, I realize that when Jesus tells us to seek kingdom treasure, that the treasure is different. But I don't know about you, but that kind of grates on me a little bit, or at least it did before I really came to understand it, because I see the pursuit of treasure for myself, no matter where it is or what the nature of that, of that treasure is, I see it as somewhat selfish, somewhat self-centered. I mean, is this what the Christian life is all about? Is this what we are supposed to do, is to pursue some kind of treasure, even though it's not here on this earth, it is still a treasure that we are setting aside and hoping that we will be rewarded with. Is that actually what kingdom treasure is all about? Well, I, as I said in my prayer, what I am hoping to do this morning is to convince you that we don't understand kingdom treasure at all. And if we did understand what it meant to build up kingdom treasure, we would spend every minute of every single hour for the rest of our lives pursuing it. And I hope I can portray it with just that importance. Now, there's three ideas. There's more floating around now, but three in particular that I want to bring up to your memory. Things that we have looked at over the last couple of weeks. One is the whole idea of covetousness, and we defined that. Jesus warned us about coveting, and he says that, you know, coveting is, is idolatry. Actually, Paul said that, but we looked at it, and we defined covetousness as a rebellion against God's providence. God provides us with what 
we need. And we say, no, Lord, I want more. And that's what covetousness is, to want more than what you have been provided. So it, it is really a sin against God's providence. And then we, we, we took it to the next step when Jesus commanded us not to be anxious. And, and, and we notice that, well, anxiety is pretty much the same thing. Anxiety is when we try to control the uncontrollable. It is a feeling of apprehension when we say to God, well, Lord, look, Lord, I know that you're all powerful, but I need to take care of myself. I got all these worries to worry about and, and, and that we take them on ourselves to try to control those. So in, in, in a very real sense, it also is a rebellion against God's providence, against God. God's ability to take care of us as we need to be taken care of. And, and, and we talked about at that time the idea of perspective, that depending on what our perspective was, whether or not our perspective was on the kingdom of heaven or on the earth in which we live, because if it is on the kingdom of heaven, it is on Jesus, we are going to be far less anxious as it will be if we are focused on this world here. Well, those same ideas are going to be brought out in the next idea that we had, the one we looked at last week, was which was the whole idea of a kingdom perspective. And we asked the question, how come with, with Jesus being so clear in this passage that we are to follow, pursue a kingdom perspective, how come we don't do it? And we'll actually get to that a little bit later on. But right now, we're right back into the same concept, the same idea of perspective, because depending on what your perspective is, is going to depend on where your treasure is or what your definition of treasure is. So with that said, and those ideas kind of floating around, we're going to come back to them. Let's take a look at our text, starting in the 32nd verse. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That is an amazing verse if we really think about it. So let's kind of take it apart. First of all, he says, fear not, little flock. What a tender address that is. This is the only place you'll find it in scripture is this right here when Jesus addresses his uh, disciples as a little flock. I do want you to notice that he commands us now not to fear. We'll talk about this in just a minute because we've talked about anxiety, we've talked about worry, and now we're going to talk about fear. But the word that Jesus uses here is the same word that he used earlier when he said, well, you, I'll tell you who to fear, fear God, because he has the power to send body and soul to hell. And so it's a real concept, it's a real idea. But when he says, fear not, little flock... Oh, what a tender address that is. Um, the, the, the word little here can mean a couple of things. Uh, on the first, it, it could mean small in numbers because it is a little flock. And, and, and the, the glory that is going to come from that little flock like a seed of mustard in the garden that turns into the great plant or leaven in the midst of dough, when that little group of people grows into a worldwide organization, then there's only one who can get the glory, and that is the Lord. And that glory, glorifying God, is kind of the underlying thing thought this morning that it is all about the glory of God. So 
when he says little flock, also I think it is kind of a term of endearment, you know, like little ones. When, when we talk to our little ones, sometimes we use that as a term of endearment. But nonetheless, the word flock, when he refers to his disciples as a flock, well, that talks of the shepherd and sheep metaphor. And brothers and sisters, it just brings a flood of biblical imagery um, uh, uh, crashing down on us. I, I think first of David. When Remember when David was trying to get Saul to let him go and confront Goliath? And this is what he said. He said, I, I'm the shepherd of my father's sheep. And he says, when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. There is a there there is a protectiveness between a shepherd and his sheep. Don't go messing with David's sheep is what he's saying. Now he extends that in the famous twenty third Psalm to be our relationship with our Father. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He creates the the metaphor that it's between the father and us is the relationship of a shepherd and a sheep. Even we see it in songs of praise, like that beautiful hundredth psalm that uh, we quite often learn. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. If you want to find out how important the idea of shepherding is to God, just read Ezekiel 34, because you will read in that chapter how God feels about those who were called to be shepherds but are not shepherding his sheep. He says, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand. But there's no place, I I don't think, where the metaphor, the idea of what Jesus is talking about here of his disciples being his flock. No no place is it more beautifully expressed than in the 10th chapter of John, that beautiful allegory when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So we basically see this incredible, beautiful relationship that he states with his, with his flock. Now, basically, we've been talking about anxiety because going back a couple of weeks, that was what Jesus commanded us not to do. Be anxious for nothing, not what you're going to eat, not what you're going to wear. And, and I don't know if you remember, as I said earlier, anxiety speaks of trying to control the uncontrollable. Well, last week he used another word to kind of describe the same thing. He says, don't be worried. And we define that word as the vacillation between complete trust in God and doubt of God, between keeping your eyes on the kingdom and keeping your eyes on earth. That's what worry came about. Well, now he addresses fear. And as I said earlier, the the word fear means a real fear. Uh, And he's saying there's no reason for fear. You have no reason for worry and you have no reason for anxiety. Why? Why? Because you're my flock. 
because I'm not just a shepherd. I'm not just your king. I am your shepherd, and I will always look out after you. I will always take care of you. That's beautiful. Once again, returning to the 10th chapter of John, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So therefore, you have no reason. He's still on the same thought as far as his disciples are concerned. I don't care what happens, what your circumstances are. You have no worry for anxiety. You have no reason for anxiety. You have no reason for worry. And you have no reason for fear because I am your shepherd and you are my sheep. I hear you. You know my voice. And I will always, always take care of you. So that's just the tender address. That's just the way he addresses it. Then he gets to even a greater statement when he says, it is the good pleasure of your father to give you the kingdom of God. Now, let me reword that because he actually says it is your father's good pleasure. So the word father comes first. And once again, Jesus has been using this language of the Trinity throughout these last couple of chapters of, of, of Luke's gospel. And, and if you remember when we talked about the cosmic initiative, we talked about here we are celebrating the second Sunday of Advent, which really is the coming of Christ, the cosmic initiative. When we study that, we've kind of identified three objectives that Jesus had. One was, of course, to destroy evil and sin and death. Two was to seek and save the lost, to lead a train of captives back to his father, purified as his bride. But thirdly, it was to reveal the Trinity, to expose the fact of of God in his triune nature. And so he has been explaining to us that we have a father, and he's been explaining to us that we have a loving, compassionate, merciful heavenly father who gives us good things, and it's his good pleasure to give us good things. We read this last week, but what he says back in the 11th chapter is, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Jesus is keying on something. The whole tone of this is the love and the provision of of the father and of the son and, and the spirit And therefore, you need not fear or worry or be anxious about anything. Then he says, it is your father's good pleasure. That's a single word in the Greek. But it is a word that means to consider something as good and worthy of choice. To consider something good and therefore worthy to be chosen. Now, we need to kind of look at this anthropomorphically, we know that God, for instance, is immutable and all of his decisions are made before the foundation of the world. And it's not like that he sits down and says, hmm, let me see, should I give the kingdom to my uh, disciples or my flock or should I not? And he comes up with a decision. But that's the idea that Jesus is putting forth here by saying it is his good pleasure. In other words, it's not just the giving of the kingdom that pleases God, that 
that delights him, but it is the choice to give the kingdom that delights the Father. It's all good, and it's all pleasure. And he has done it and decided to do this before the very foundations of the world. And so he says, Jesus says, it is the Father's good pleasure, it is his delight to give you the kingdom. Now, if I hadn't divided this sermon, which you know I did last week, well, we would have just discussed what the meaning of kingdom was. It would be fresh in our minds. So let me redefine it very, very briefly for you. When we talk about a kingdom of any kind, we kind of isolate three elements of a kingdom that are necessary. One, a sovereign king. Secondly, a dominion over which that king is sovereign. And then thirdly, subjects over whom that king is sovereign. Okay, that's the basics of a kingdom. Now, of course, when we look at the kingdom of God, there is no question about who the sovereign king of that kingdom is. It is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are without a doubt one in person, I'm sorry, one in being, one in essence, three in person. That's the king of the kingdom of God. The dominion, on the other hand, of the kingdom of God is everything that exists. And that includes heaven, that includes hell, that includes the universe, that includes the planet on which we live, and that includes any dimension of which we might be ignorant. It includes everything that actually exists, is under the sovereign rule or dominion of God. And thirdly, the... The subjects, now technically speaking, the subjects of the kingdom of God include every single living soul, every single living creature that he has created, especially the angels, whether they're good angels or evil angels, devils and demons, whether or not they are people and whether those people accept him as Lord and Savior or whether they reject him and live lives of evil. They're all subjects, whether they want to be a subject or not. But in a non-technical sense, we normally speak of the subjects of the kingdom of God, especially when we talk about the heavenly version of that. Well, those subjects are those who've given their life to Jesus Christ or those in the Old Testament who were faithful saints according to the administration of God's grace in that time. And so therefore, the, the subjects are under the sovereign rule of God and of God alone. Now, last week also, we talked about what does it mean to seek the kingdom of God. Now, this is important because it will come up later on. And we decided that basically there are sort of three ideas, three ways that we seek. If we really want to seek the kingdom of God, the first and foremost of the greatest importance is that we seek the king of that kingdom. We honor him and love him and worship and pursue him and praise him. He is the focus of our attention and of our affection. That is what it means to seek the kingdom of God, to seek the king of that kingdom, which is God. Secondly, it is to, um, uh, to 
live according to the ethical standards of that kingdom. And we, we talked about them, that the kingdom comes with a set of ethical standards. Those are ethics that have been placed uh, there by God, his moral heart, and, 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 and very much expanded upon, or at least explained, illuminated by Jesus Christ. The, the kingdom um, is, is uh, the, 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 the various things that we, we see in that kingdom. Things like um, a selflessness and and a contrite heart and forgiveness and mercy. These are the the the, the things that are important within um, the following after the ethical standard of the kingdom. And thirdly, was the protection, the furtherance, the defense, the establishment of the kingdom of God. To be involved with seeking the kingdom is to seek it not just for yourself, but for all people, ultimately, for the whole human race. And and that's a tireless and sometimes a very frustrating um, job. That's what it means. That's the basis of what it means to seek the kingdom. Now, with that stated... What does it mean when Jesus says it is your father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom of God? Notice the personal pronouns there. Your father give to you. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, let me tell you what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean give it to us lock, stock, and barrel. It doesn't mean that he turns the keys to the kingdom over to us, and as the deists believe, he goes off someplace else and leaves us to ourselves. It doesn't mean that this kingdom is sort of like one of those companies that is owned and operated by its employees. The, the employees own it. I think more, probably more realistic in this sense. It doesn't mean that the asylum is run by the inmates. It, 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 it means that, that God is still sovereign. God is still the one with dominion over the kingdom. So when Jesus says he is pleased to give you the kingdom, it must mean something else. And, and, and I think that basically what it means is access to the kingdom, uh, um, entrance to the kingdom citizenship in the kingdom. That is a gift. And we're talking about our salvation. We're talking about how we get to go to the kingdom in the first place. You, you, you don't decide that I'm just going to be a member of that kingdom. This is something that is, is brought on upon us. Jesus put it this way in John. He says, you did not choose me, talking to his disciples, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Now, we know this. We know that we don't attain entrance into the kingdom of God, <clears throat> excuse me, through our own merit, our, our, our own good works. Paul made that clear to the Galatians when he says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. It is faith in Jesus Christ that is entrance into that kingdom, a regenerated heart by the Holy Spirit, the election of God the Father. All of this is, is how we are given the kingdom. But I think there's something more. I don't think it stops there. I don't think it stops with a citizenship. Because when we become Christians, when we are saved, when our hearts are regenerated, when we walk through the narrow gate and find ourselves on that, that hard road, we become the children of God. 
John famously said this, <clears throat> I read it last week, to all who did receive him he be- and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, Paul confirms this in the book of Romans when he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. That means that you're not just a citizen of the kingdom of heaven when he gives you the kingdom. It means that you're an heir. It means that you're an adopted son or daughter and that the resources of the kingdom are given to you in their entirety. The treasure of the kingdom of God is yours. So what is the treasure? of the kingdom of God. That's the operative question this morning, folks. What is that treasure? Well, the way I see it is things like holiness, things like the truth, things like perfect righteousness, the glory of God, a life eternal. But of course, the greatest, the most important blessing, gift, and treasure of the kingdom of God is God himself. To be in his presence to know Him and be known by Him, to live in an eternity in the presence and the glory of the triune God, there can be no greater gift than that. That's the treasure of heaven, and that is given to us by God Himself, and it is His good pleasure to give that gift. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, and and again, this is spread out over a couple of weeks, but there's a little bit of a paradox here. A little bit of an anomaly again, you know. Notice that the fact that when Jesus speaks, he's speaking of a treasure that is a a treasure that is in heaven. So on the one side, we are told that this is given to us. It is a gift. He just said that. There's good father's good pleasure to give you the gift. But wait a minute. Last week, he told us to seek the kingdom of heaven. And that's an action. That is something that we are supposed to do. So which is it? Are we given the kingdom or do we seek the kingdom? And as you might imagine, the answer to that is yes. Okay? It's both. And and in different senses. Because you are given the kingdom in the sense of your salvation. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And so therefore, no one ends up in the kingdom of God under their own merit. Everyone is given that as a gift of God. Faith in Jesus Christ, like all kinds of faith, is a gift that God gives us. But then when you find yourself, as I said earlier, through that narrow gate, and you're on that hard road, well, guess what? That's a hard road. And sometimes sanctification can be difficult. That's the reason Jesus says you need to seek the kingdom of God. You need to have action. You need to be part of this. That's why he said in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's why he told Timothy, he says, man, I'm going to finish the race. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And all Christians should do the same. So our sanctification does not come easily. Our sanctification requires effort. Our salvation doesn't. And that's the reason. That's how he can give us the kingdom in one sense. And we can have to seek it in another. Well, now that he has that established, he is going to make a, 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 a real profound point about kingdom treasure. 
And he's going to, in the process, tell us how to deal with our earthly possessions in a kingdom context. Look in the 33rd verse. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Now, unfortunately, this verse has been misunderstood and misapplied and given rise to a sort of asceticism. That's just simply, I'm going to do without things. Um, sort of an asceticism that says that all, per, all possessions are evil, and therefore poverty is the only true way to follow Jesus Christ. Well, I'll quote Dr. Sproul in his um, uh, commentary when he says, this is not a universal mandate for everybody to divest themselves of all earthly goods. Now, I want you to notice two words that he included in that statement. He says it's not a universal mandate that everybody should divest themselves of all their earthly goods. Two words, everybody and all, that are not in Jesus' statement. Okay, and that's the reason we need to look at this. He doesn't say everybody, folks. He doesn't say, okay, everybody, all of you guys go out and sell every single thing that you have and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. He doesn't say that for everybody. Now, there are people he says that to. There are people who are, have that kind of a calling. You may remember the rich young ruler. We'll get to him in a, in a little bit. But uh, uh, when, when, when he had such a fixation and he wouldn't leave all of his earthly goods, well, that's when Jesus said, one thing that you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. He needed to get rid of all of his possessions, but he doesn't say that to everyone. Peter and the apostles were called to leave everything behind. Peter said that. He says, look, Jesus, we have left everything for you. Some of the people in the early church that we read about in Acts were giving all of their possessions and selling them, and they were doing that willingly. There are missionaries sometimes called to difficult places, difficult and, and, and poor parts of the world where their earthly possessions just would not make any sense. You don't show up in a desperately poor place with your Limoges china or crystal or whatever it is. It just doesn't make any sense. And so therefore you leave it behind. Well, sometimes God calls people to give up everything, but not everybody, not everybody. And so therefore we need to recognize that they're, 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 this is not a universal mandate. And beyond that, he does not say, sell all your possessions everything that you know. What would happen? Just think about this. What would happen? Let's just take this country. Um, the, it's still, and I think this was 22, um, the, through religious organizations, not, not just churches, but religious organizations, something like $130 billion is donated far and above, way, I mean, off the charts compared to any other religion or any other giving source. It is still religious giving that is at the top of that. Can you imagine if every single Christian, in, true Christian, in this country sold everything that they had and gave everything to the poor. You know, that would be amazing for the poor, wouldn't it? For that year. But who's going to give the $129 billion the next year? 
because you have just increased the number of poor in this, com- in this country exponentially. In other words, God doesn't call everyone to sell everything that they have and give everything to the poor because some people have got to generate resources to bring into the kingdom to give to the poor. And so, therefore, we have to keep it in perspective. And so, gee, this, this is not a universal mandate. What it is, and, and it's really a side statement. It's not even his primary purpose here. But what it is, is a side statement that emphasizes the importance of diaconate to the church, of benevolence, of giving to those who need it, of taking care of the poor. Uh, I mean, Jesus himself in his ministry, they had a money bag. Judas, of course, was pilfering from it. But nonetheless, they were obviously giving money to the poor. And and so um, that was always a very vital part of the church. John has some very poignant words to say to Christians about this in his first letter. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How is it possible for the church in the United States, as wealthy as we are, to completely close our eyes and act like the rest of the world is living according to the same standard as we do? No, we don't. We can't do that. Your, your heart is not going to allow you to do that. So Jesus says, sell what you have and give to the poor. It's an important aspect. And in doing so, and here's his main point, in doing so, you will build up treasure where it really counts. And that's what he means when he says, provide yourself with money bags. That's just another way of saying, store your treasure. Don't, don't store your treasure here on earth because uh, uh, rust and, 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 and moth and, and, and thieves destroy. Matthew says it a little bit more detailed in his gospel and the, and the Sermon on the Mount. He says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, what he is saying that the actual, the, the central message that he has here has to do with kingdom treasure, okay? Build up kingdom treasure by the way that you live your life here because that treasure will never be destroyed. I kind of like the way that Jim Elliott put this, uh, you know, the one who was killed uh, there in the wilds of Peru. Actually, this is John MacArthur quoting Elizabeth Elliott, who's quoting Jim Elliott. But he says this, he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I like that way. He's no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. But before we leave this, I want you once again to notice the anomaly that kind of sticks in my craw a little bit. Jesus just commanded us to seek treasure and store it in heaven. That's what he says. He's saying, okay, build up your, your treasure in heaven. So how can I do that without being selfish? How is it possible that I can have a motivation in this world to build up treasure in heaven without saying, wow, boy, you know something, I'm really going to feather my little vault up there and I'm going to add treasure to it. So there's got to be something we're missing here and we're going to get to that because I don't think that that is the essence of Christianity.
Well, before we do that, let's look at this last statement. For Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, we need to define treasure. What is treasure? Is it just money? Is it just gold and silver and diamonds and rubies? Well, it, it is that. But basically, treasure is whatever you hold most dear. We talked last week about value systems and sometimes adopting the value system of the world. Well, the value system puts a premium on these things and and holds them dear. And that is basically what treasure is. Whatever it is that's precious to you, whatever it is that you are motivated to pursue with your life. And when he says your heart, wherever your treasure is, your heart will be also. Well, in the Hebrew sense, the heart represents your essence, your life force. And so this is a really straightforward, but a really profound statement. We've talked about perspective, and this gets right back to the idea of perspective. If you have a kingdom perspective, then you're going to realize that you are a sojourner on this world. And I I like the way I think Tim Keller did this. He says, who on earth would go to a hotel room and invest $100,000 to fix it up when they're going to stay there a week? I mean, that's exactly like building things up in this world. I mean, go home and fix up your house where you're going to live. And put your treasure in heaven where it belongs, okay? Well, that's exactly, in a sense, what Jesus is saying here. But does that mean that we're supposed to just pursue that? Well, nonetheless, wherever your treasure is, that's where your life force, that is where your motivation, that is what you're going to try more than anything else to accomplish. Now, once again, if your perspective is heaven, your treasure is going to be in heaven. If your perspective is earth, your treasure is going to be in earth. But there's a flip side to it. There's another aspect of it because Jesus not only talks about treasure, he talks about reward. And when he talks about reward, he talks about it the same way. He talks about why would you build up your, your reward here on earth? In fact, he says this on multiple cases, thus, multiple occasions, thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. And here's the important uh, sentence. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. You're not going to get a reward in heaven if your motivation and perspective is here on earth. You get your reward while you're here, as tawdry and as tainted as that is. The nature of your reward is not the nature of treasure in heaven. The nature of your reward is the reward of this earth. And by the way, it's mutually exclusive. You're either going to build up treasure in heaven or you're going to build up treasure on earth. In heaven, it's eternal. On earth, it's temporary. In heaven, you, you, you have the glory of God in, in, in the presence of that here. You're just simply going to be rewarded by those that you try to impress. And so, therefore, that um, I I kind of think it sort of makes the point that Jesus commands us without question that we are to build up treasure in heaven. But let's go back to the same question I asked you at the end of the message last week. I don't want to give the impression this is the end of the message. Uh, At the the end of the text, um, uh, I, I asked you, with that clear, with Jesus being as clear as, as he can be about that, why on earth do more people not pursue the kingdom of God? 
why on earth do more people not work hard to build up their treasure in heaven rather than building it up here on earth? Uh, and, and beyond that, we have a second question that I, I want to ask is, well, if I'm pursuing the kingdom of heaven in the same way that I would pursue the kingdom of earth, then what's the difference? If I selfishly am saying to myself, okay, I just, you know, I, I realize that to do all these good things, to pursue Jesus, to love him, to work for the kingdom, to try and follow the rules of the kingdom, then, then, then I, I'm going to build up treasure in heaven and I'm going to do that so that I have more treasure than you. All right. So, so that I'm better off than you or I've got a better position or I've got a bigger house than you do once we get uh, to heaven. And so if that's my motivation, if, if that's the reason that I am doing that, how is it possible that I can actually have that kind of an attitude in heaven? Because from, from what I understand, that is not what heaven is going to be about at all. And so therefore, brothers and sisters, I think we need to rethink kingdom treasure. I think, I think we need to see it in a different way. Okay. What do you think about? Seriously, we all, we all must think of this. When Jesus says, build up your treasure in, in, in heaven and you're going to have a great reward, what do you think about? Do you think like I used to when I was a kid and actually for a while when I was a, a, a new Christian that I've got this big vault up there and a big huge bank? And the more good things I do here, the more gold and silver and diamonds and things. Or I've got a bigger house, you know. I live on a different street than you do. You live on the other side of the tracks. I get to live in, 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 in the high rent district. Do you think that's the way it is? Well, that runs against everything that Jesus taught. And in fact, we are taught that the streets of, of heaven are, are paved in gold, you know. That the gates are made with pearls, or right? one great pearl. That that the foundations are precious gems, and people say, "Wow, that is so glitzy." Well, wait a bit. No, realize what you're doing. What are roads made out of? What do we make streets out of? Concrete, asphalt, gravel, and dirt. That's what gold is worth up there. Okay, pearls, precious gems. That's concrete and rebar. All right. That's just building materials. There's no value on that kind of stuff. I don't care if you've got the biggest vault full of gold and silver that you can possibly amass up there. That's not what the treasure of heaven is. That's worthless there. So treasure in heaven has got to be something completely different. Now, how does Jesus present? I think we can get a clue by looking at how Jesus says we gain kingdom treasure okay how, how, how do we achieve it well several things that I want to see first of all he makes it very clear in just the passage that we just read provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail okay so obvious what he says is that treasure in heaven is different from our understanding of treasure on earth it's a different kind of treasure it's not just that there's no rust and there's no moth and there's no thieves in heaven which I don't imagine there are but it doesn't it means more than that it means the nature of the the treasure is different. So those things, even if they were there, would not, um, uh, would, would, would not hurt it. And by the same token, Jesus, when he talks about reward, 
when he talks about the reward that we will have in, in heaven, it is almost always couched in the ethical standards of the kingdom. It is always couched in, in, in what not to do in order to gain the reward. For instance, Matthew 6 again, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Did you hear that? That if your motives aren't absolutely, completely pure, if you are going through the motions, if you're doing like the hypocrites, if you're living a life just because you think that a good person is going to be treated better, then you have a zero balance of the reward in God's heaven. Okay? That's not going to get you. So it's a different kind of reward. We've got to recognize this. In fact... When Jesus talks about how we get our reward in heaven, he talks about um, suffering. He talks about misery. He talks about being beat on or put in jail. He says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. I'm sorry, I just read that. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Rejoice when you are persecuted and you will find reward in heaven. So, how does one gain kingdom treasure? We talked about three ways that you seek the kingdom of God, didn't we? Now, I would assume that the way to build up kingdom treasure is to seek the kingdom of God as Jesus has just taught us to. Now, what's the first and the most important aspect of seeking the kingdom of God? To seek the king. To seek the triune God. To honor him. To worship him. To praise him. To glorify him. Is it possible, brothers and sisters, to love God selfishly. We are told that the greatest commandment, the greatest of all ethical standards in the kingdom is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is it possible to love God selflessly with selfish motives? No, it is not. It is not. I'll give you a principle. Therefore, it is impossible to selflessly love the triune God with selfish motives. That means that unless your motives are pure and loving God and it's all about Him and not about you, it is completely selfless. You build up no treasure whatsoever in heaven. Okay, you only do it through completely selflessly loving God. What about the ethical standards of the kingdom of God? Have you paid attention to what those ethical standards are? It, it, it is the most self, selfless bunch of commandments you've ever seen. I mean, going back to Luke 6, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Somebody hits you on the left cheek, turn the right one to them. Somebody takes your cloak, give them your tunic. If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself daily. Pick up your cross and follow me. The way that you earn kingdom treasure is through selflessness. Do you think for a moment 
that anything to do with that treasure is going to be selfish. It will not be. It can't be because then it would be completely out of whack of everything else. And then finally, what about pursuing the kingdom of God? What about growing it? What about advancing it? What about defending it? What about protecting it? What about sharing the gospel? What kind of a life are you going to look? Now, this is totally and completely different. How on earth the health and wealth gospel people get uh, what they get out of Scripture? I'll have no idea because that's not the same Bible that I read. Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. Brothers will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. That is a selfless life. And if you want to see what the life of a born again believer is like, one that gives his heart completely and totally to Christ, all we have to do is look at the life of Paul. Reading from 2 Corinthians, I'm talking like a madman, he says. My labors are so much more, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. That's how you build up kingdom treasure, folks. Selflessness. There's nothing self-centered or selfish about it. So let me give you a principle. Kingdom treasure in God's kingdom is a byproduct of a selfless, sanctified life that seeks the kingdom of God here on earth. Let me repeat that. True kingdom treasure is a byproduct of a selfless, sanctified life that seeks first the kingdom of God on this earth and denies themselves in the process. So once again, I've got a question for you. How can I have selfish motives about my kingdom treasure? If I get to the kingdom of heaven and I've got this huge bank vault full of, 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 of treasure, whatever it looks like up there, and you don't, how is it possible that I'm not going to have a selfish reward? How can my reward be the kind of treasure that we imagine? Now, even when we look at the treasure of heaven and we say, okay, it's not the treasure of earth, what do we know about what we will experience in heaven? What do we know as far as the kind of life that we will give? What is the treasure? What could the treasure of heaven be? Well, there's a variety of things, and I've already listed some of them. First of all, holiness, a perfect righteousness that is the alien righteousness of Christ that is given to us, the ability to stand before a holy Father without being destroyed, to be absolutely purified and cleansed, to know the truth, that which we see with our faith, only to know then we will see it with our eyes, to be in the presence of the Father, to be in the presence of the Son, 
to be in the presence of the Spirit for an eternity, to live in the light of the triune God, to have an eternal existence that will never end with no sorrow, no pain, no death, no disease, to worship God in a way that now we can only imagine. But once again, the greatest gift, the greatest treasure that we will experience in heaven is Jesus. The greatest treasure is the triune God. After I have divested myself, not divested myself, but after my fallen body is no more and has fallen away, after we are spiritually wed to the Lamb of God, after we have sat down with Him at that wedding feast of the Lamb, after we have been invited in, we will be in Him, we will be with Him, we will see Him, and He will see us. We will know Him in a way that we can only accept by faith. Brothers and sisters, that's the greatest treasure of heaven. Now, here's my question, and and, and I I don't know that I can make myself clear. How, How does that translate into a reward that I can enjoy that you don't? Okay? That's all saints. And I, I guess I should turn that around. How do I turn that into a treasure that you enjoy and I don't? Okay? Because that's just it. I mean, if, 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 if someone is going to be rewarded more so in the kingdom of God and have more treasure for what they've done on this earth, how is that possible that then that the things that are open to all saints would in some way be by degree? That's the reason, brothers and sisters, that I think we need to rethink kingdom treasure. What if it's not about me? What if it's not about you? What if the treasure that we put aside in heaven is not mine or yours? What if there are no possessive pronouns at all? No my, no mine, no yours, no ours, just his. What if the treasure of heaven is the glory of God? After all, that's what we are told we are made for. That is our purpose, is to enjoy God and to glorify Him forever. Okay? That's our greatest purpose. What if the treasure that I am able to create is not a treasure that I will ever see or put my hands around? It will not be stored in a vault for me. It is simply the glory of God. What if I have the great privilege? I'll never know it. Because you see, I'm not interested in what I've done. All I'm interested in is God's glory. That's the only thing I'm interested in in heaven. And I would be mortified. I think we would be mortified if we had the kind of vaults full of treasure that we set aside for ourselves because it would bring attention to ourselves and not to God. And it's the glory of God that we will enjoy for an absolute eternity. So what if the treasure that we have is something that if we pursue it, brings glory to God? And, and, and it's not something that's tangible that we, that we can touch and feel. Now, wouldn't that mean that it would all fit? Wouldn't that mean that the pursuit of treasure is no longer selfish? It is not something that I am ever going to attain for myself, but I have an incredible opportunity, and you do as well, brothers and sisters. We can bring such glory to God while we are here on this earth. 
How did Jesus' life glorify the Father? When he glorified God, when he brought glory to his Father, what was he doing? He was, he was in human form. He had a body. When he was tempted by the devil, did he bring glory to his Father? When he was obedient in the Garden of Gethsemane and he went to the cross, did he bring glory to his Father? When he died on that cross with my sins and your sins upon him and he suffered more than anyone can even imagine, what did he do? He brought glory to his Father because that is exactly what we read in John 12. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven and said, I've glorified it and I will glorify it again. He's talking about the cross. Imagine that when you're in heaven, you have a glorified body and you're perfect and you're sinless. And you glorify God every day. But wait a minute. What about here? What about now? Is there not more glory to bring glory to God when you're sorely tempted? Is it not more glory as it was for Jesus to bring glory to God when you are obedient to Him even though everything around you tries to pull you away? Don't you have the opportunity to build up not your treasure, not your treasure vault, but glory to the Father by the way that you live your life here on earth? What a magnificent, powerful opportunity that you have to glorify God in a way that you're not going to be able to do for eternity because you're going to be perfect. You're not going to have to become a conqueror. You're not going to have to overcome your temptation or your flesh. But you do it here. And every time you do, brothers and sisters, you glorify God. And I believe that is the crux of our treasure. Now let me emphasize something. I can't point you to anywhere in Scripture where what I just said is explicitly stated. It makes sense to me. It's reasonable. I don't think that a treasure that is attained by selfless means would be something that would be selfish. And I know without a fact, without a question, that to glorify God is my purpose in existence. So I don't know what the treasure looks like, and I'm not exactly sure how the reward is going to be divvied out. But you know something? If I get up there and I've got a vault, you know the first thing I want to do? I'm going to give it to the glory of God. Because already in my sanctified self, I don't want it. I don't want a treasure trove. I don't want a bigger house than you. I don't want to live on a different street. I want God's glory. And if I pursue His glory, that means I'm pursuing kingdom treasure every day of my life. Why wouldn't we do that? So brothers and sisters, as I said, I don't know what it looks like, but I can tell you this. Jesus told me, Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. And I will take that to heart. With every breath that I breathe, I will pursue the kingdom of heaven. As long as there is strength in my body, I will pursue his, his, his holiness. I will pursue his ethical standards. I will do what I can do to build the kingdom. I will follow what he tells me. And when I get to heaven, whatever that treasure looks like, I know because my Lord told me that there will be a reward. So I will leave that up to him. And for the time being, what I will do and what I will encourage you to do is to seek kingdom treasure. Yes. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, what a, what a different look that is on treasure. And what a different perspective that is. We know that to pursue you and to live a life that makes you 
um, unpleased with us. We know that brings glory to you, but perhaps, just perhaps, that glory is the treasure and that therefore we should pursue that regardless of whether it's treasure or not. We should pursue your glory every single day. Give us the strength to do that, Lord. Give us the conviction and the desire to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.